there's nothing growing. There's not much for us to do. Um, we were responsible for carting all of the paddy rice in the Southern Riverina for sunrise. And in the peak of it, in the peak of the good times, we were responsible for carting about 1.2 million tonnes. The year I came home, we carted 17,000. G'day everyone, I'm David Boyer and welcome to Backbone Podcast brought to you by Judo Bank. At the start, you heard from Lizzie Bales. She is an Aussie entrepreneur we should all be proud of. She left university to go back to a small town and work in the family business that was massively affected by the drought. She not only navigated her family through that very tough time, but went on to give back to the community, founding Blacksmith Provador on Lake Mawala in the corner of New South Wales and Victoria. Her pub is designed to give back to the community and is a place for them to congregate after a hard day's work. It just so happens that it's become a tourist attraction and it's bringing more money back into a drought-stricken region. She is a drought survivor. She is a thriving businesswoman. Joining us on Backbone Podcast is Lizzie Bales from Blacksmith Provador up on the corner of New South Wales and Victoria, right on the border there. Lizzie, thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. Tell me a little bit about what you do and where you're from, because you run a hospitality business in a drought-stricken Aussie town. Mm, so we're located in a beautiful part of country Australia. So like you said, on the border of New South Wales and Victoria, um, Mawala itself has a population of just shy of 2,000 people and Yarrawonga about mm, 7,000. So it's similar in style to Albury-Wodonga as a border town, but uh, much, much smaller. And much more closer to Melbourne as well. Is it? Mm, three hours. See, us three city hours. slickers, we don't really understand the country. Yeah, but we do talk about country kilometres. I know with my girlfriends from Melbourne, when I chat to them about, oh, I'm just ducking over to see something that's 50 minutes away or an hour away. They're like, what? I'm like, no, but it's always an hour. You know, it's always an hour and I never get stuck in traffic and it always takes me exactly the same amount of time. So it's not that bad. No, well, the funny thing is everything kind of takes an hour now in Melbourne anyway because <laughs> our traffic's so bad, which I know country folk love talking about when they get down here. There's a lot of room for improvement. Your business story is remarkable because it was forged. You're a uni dropout. Correct. And then you forged your business experience navigating an agricultural-led family logistics business mm. through the 10-year drought? Yeah, I think I came in on what turned out to be the seventh year of the 10-year millennial drought and it was pretty brutal and we were based in a, an even smaller country town called Finley. And, uh, yeah, things had been not great in Finley for a fairly long time at the point that I got involved. When we hear about drought was brutal, what does that actually mean for a family business? Oh, I think I think mental health as a buzzword has come a long way since 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, I mean no cash flow, no optimism, no opportunities on the horizon. If there's nothing growing, there's not much for us to do. Um, we were responsible for carting all of the paddy rice in the Southern Riverina for sunrise. And in the peak of it, in the peak of the good times, we were responsible for carting about 1.2 million tonnes. The year I came home, we carted 17,000. Wow. Mm. That's a 99% drop-off in business. So as an accountant yourself, how does a business navigate that? No, you don't. You wind it up. That's, that's, <laughs> what, yeah, that's what we yes. say. That's yeah. our, our, yeah. our conservative pessimism. Yeah. Um, what made you go – it was unfair of me to call you a university dropout. No, valid. Because you got a call yes. to leave university and come to the business to help cart these 17,000 tonnes around as profitably as possible. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, anyone who know who works in family, family business know family, the family gets paid nothing. So maybe that was the strategy. Yeah. <laughs> it was going, yeah. we're struggling with our wages, so let's just call in the slave labour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And bang for buck they got. But um, So there was a step in between that um, where I had actually dropped out of uni because I'd been offered a full-time job in the city at the Grand Hyatt and I was loving working. I was loving work. I was loving getting a paycheck and that's what I was doing in between my 12 hours of commerce. And, uh, and I resented uni more and more and I enjoyed working more and more. So I took that step. And then it was three years later that my dad wheeled in the Land Cruiser and um, we had a conversation and he didn't want me to come home actually. It was quite the opposite. It was me very compelled to come home to help as, as opposed to him saying, like bloody fun, you're staying right where you are. This is, there's nothing for you up there. There's, um, I have a very... A, a very tight image of a dusty, drought-stricken land cruiser rocking up at the swanky Grand Hyatt in Melbourne, <laughs> and this is like country mate city right now. Yeah. But you want to go and help because your 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 family. You know, we've been chatting. Your family's clearly a big part of your life. Mm. Um, how did you think that you actually could help though? Because well, choosing to get involved with the family business, I mean, you mentioned to me your brother wasn't that keen on it initially either. He was the family accountant. Yes. Well, I think that um, what I learned is that when you've been involved in family business around the dinner table, around the kitchen benches, you've lived and breathed it. You've been in the car when loudspeaker calls have come through and you're hearing, hearing your dad or mother, depending, but in my case it was my father, wheeling and dealing. You actually don't realise over those formative years how much you've actually absorbed And I didn't realise how truly passionate I was about what we do and how we did it. Your um, husband got involved with this as well Mm. because he had to get permission from a supplier. (laughs) Is that right? Oh, I I asked him to ask his boss, yeah. Who was a customer of yours. Correct, yes. And, And my own dad because I was the only female in it. 99% 99% male-dominated industry and it was blowing people's minds that someone at the age of 20 who was young and blonde and was not an ex-truck driver could possibly be winning these contracts and delivering on the promises and shipping tonnes to port and they couldn't fathom that I wasn't sleeping for my work. Is that Did that play on your mind in terms of how people respected you and what you were doing? Oh, completely, completely. Is it fair? You know what? I don't harbour any resentment. I think it made me better what I was doing. I think that um, women have a chip on their shoulder about it not being fair and I think it gets in the way of them doing a good job. I decided very early on I was going to let my work do the talking. The... um the drought ends eventually, so mm. you kind of let your family suffer through the, through the worst seven years. <laughs> well, well, yeah. that's, that's also not fair because you were 20. Yes. Um, your, your family gets through it. You come in at the end and you spoke to me about having to make changes. Mm. How do you come up with, given the background that you had, which was a few years at university and then, then hospitality at a, a very you know, five-star mm. hotel, how do you come up with the vision of how you want this family trucking business to run? How do you know what you're changing to? I think that I was very driven by my father's vision of being a professional family-run outfit. The comment that he always made was that um, our prices are competitive but our service is priceless and I guess that aligned very much with my five-star 
customer service mm. experience. And so I really connected with that. And what I connected with was that we had a dynamic that was really agile and really dynamic, but where we struggled at that particular time was the culture. And I knew just from how um, reading, listening to TED Talks, being exposed to multiple entrepreneurs and business owners in my short time at that point was that we weren't where we needed to be to move forward and we weren't proud of where we needed to be and we weren't proud of a lot of the people we did have and because ultimately in a drought-stricken area, the good ones leave. The not being proud of your people, mm. that's that's very deep. Well, I think that when you find that there are people stealing from you and there are people talking negatively about you and they don't know you and they don't understand where you're coming from, I think people fill fill questions with their own answers that aren't actually the case. And I think that dad, my dad has the biggest heart and he was a yes man. Hmm. And so he just got taken advantage of time and time again. A lot of small business operates in its community. It serves its community, employs Mm. its community. So Mm. this change was it. I mean, how did you find the new people? We just cast the net a little bit wider. But what we did was we set the expectation in the interview of the person that we were looking for. And, I mean, I was very honest about saying, look, I'm the director of operations. I'm well aware that I don't fit the cliche, but I know what I'm doing and I want to work with you. Are you comfortable with me managing you and me being the one to tell you where you're going in your truck today? And I said, if you're not, that's completely fine and I won't be offended but if you are, we need to agree today that we're going to have mutual respect for one another. Wow. Mm. The You have a love of the area mm. that, that you've grown up in. I mean, you moved from – you lived in the, the leafy suburbs of Melbourne. I did. Hawthorne and Kew and MLC Girl, which is quite a prestigious school down here that your father was uncompromising on your education. Yes. How much of that influence helped you go back to the, kind of the country that you came from? It's a beautiful story, like going mm. back to the – the, the small town you I think there was this notion which still frustrates me today because again it's a thing that people say as a throwaway comment but they go oh you know you've changed and I thought yeah I left Finley when I was 14 years old and I've come back at 19 I hope I've changed <laughs> you know like I hope I've learned and matured and had experiences um that now bring value back to the community uh the family business is run now by family still. Yes. Who? So you got because you've extricated yourself out of it, which is pretty hard as well. It was so hard to do, and it was still actually probably the toughest conversation I've had with my dad. And my brother was in the room too, and oh, it makes me gives me goosebumps now thinking about it. Actually, it was the genuine frog in the throat and the pit in the stomach, and it was spitting it out. It was like, oh, you know, we'd been through so much. What did you tell them you were going to do? I said. I'm going to go and set up a wine bar in Yarrawonga. And I just remember dad trying to pretend he knew it, knew it was coming and because he'd been, he'd been expecting it to come for eight years. You know, he, it was somewhat of a dream. Like I said earlier, we were somewhat of the maverick and goose and dad and I had always had a super special connection even prior to the business. So to then... That's a Top Gun reference for listeners out there who aren't (laughs) as familiar with 80s epic Tom Cruise movies as you and I. Epic being the operative word. Um, So he was... Oh, I think he he was still sad, you know. I mean... He wasn't surprised because he knew that this was his thing and I, I never quite fitted in. I did but and I did, I loved it and I loved our people and I loved the work and our customers are still my friends today even though I've left the industry, so to speak. 
Um, I still love when our growers and our farmers and our, um, you know, agricultural specialists come into Blacksmith and I go, oh, how much rain did you get? Oh, fantastic. And how's harvest going? And oh, what's this? Where is this rain going to come? Is it, you know, how are we going to get through? Oh, you got a new header. What did you get? Oh, you got a new truck. You know, my husband calls me a, um, a diesel. So you fill in the rest and uh he's just always appalled when we're at somewhere and someone goes oh yeah and no, i bought a new truck the other week and got a new trailer i'm the one oh, what did you get oh great you know what engine did you go with and what size stacks have you got and did what air cooler and da, da, da. you know i I'm, I'm so into it yeah um you you said to me that you're a doer you like to do mm-hmm. uh, but really you're, you're pretty good at coming up with a vision mm-hmm. and and bringing it to life mm-hmm. You developed this vision for a wine bar. Now, Australia has a bit of a culture of the foodie centres just outside our capital cities in Victoria. The Yarra Valley is the most popular one. Adelaide's mm. got the Barossa, Margaret River over in Perth. Um, we, and, and Mildura, to an extent, in Melbourne with Stefano Di Pieri up on the, up on the, right in the top end of Victoria mm. there. Did that influence your vision for what Blacksmith has become? I think I wanted it to be even more genuine than those areas because those areas are still servicing the city and where my vision really, really lies is with the country people and for the country people. Country people and wine bars. Doesn't, it doesn't fit the stereotype. Maybe that's why it works. I mean, I said to you earlier, we don't we don't drive or travel to Sydney or Melbourne or Byron Bay every other weekend for the traffic, which was touched on earlier, and the bad population. We go for the places and the spaces and the experiences and the food and, you know, and, and that next level of an experience. And I just thought, why is it that we're, that there's this notion that because we're in the country, we're less deserving of those places? Blacksmith has just won a pretty big award, the mm. Eat Food. Eat Drink Design. It just feels like something that people have up in their kitchens. <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't sound like a real award. Yeah. But it's quite a prestigious architectural award. And yes. it's become because of the design of the place is, and I've only seen it on photos, I wanted to come and see, but we're, we're down in the judo bank offices right mm. now mm. in a room that I think should win a design award as far as banking boardrooms go, but you know, <laughs> it's probably not going to because it's not as cool as your place. <laughs> I've been to Yarrawonga. It is a 1970s brown brick um, coliseum. It's an ode to that brickwork Mm. of the 70s, really. And Mm. you've come out with this ultra bold, completely different and fresh design. But you had nothing to start with. You had to finance this, design it, come Mm. up with it. Mm. When we spoke on the phone to set up this interview, you said there's no chance this wasn't going to work. (laughs) Every entrepreneur, successful or failed, has said those words. I believe it, yeah. How did you come up with such a bold design for the place? Why does that matter? Well, I was lucky enough um, when working in the family business to travel a lot and I was certainly the person when I was with the Hyatt. Um, We were lucky enough in the employment package at the time and um, I hope it's still the case because it, the fringe benefits were great, but we got to, if you worked full time, you got six nights free on Australian properties or 12 nights at an international hire property. Wow, that's a perk. It, it was. And when you're on entry level wages, yeah. but you're at that age of 18, 19 and you're keen to travel, that was a massive, massive, massive perk. So um, I was certainly in that phase where I worked my backside off for nine, 10 months and then 
put the backpack on and, and traveled and I had three nights in a backpackers and then three nights at a Hyatt hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone listening, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Doing both. <laughs> backpacking, backpacking at the age of 19 and getting, getting the fluffy robes and the slippers in between, you know, in between the hostels. Um, so that influenced the, the, the design that you wanted. I, I'd place. had a lot of exposure to a lot of amazing places, LA, New York, Europe, um, even Melbourne. I mean, Melbourne inspires so much for so many people. It really has the best. Melbourne is, in my opinion, the best city in the world, apart from the traffic. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> the the ability that you have to come up with something and make it happen. Mm. What do you reckon are sort of like the three most important things someone needs to do to have? I don't know if I can say, it, but you've got balls. It's actually when my when my brother got tipsy and we had a little bit of a night out not that long ago. Oh, that's, kind of- <laughs> now that's the great Australian entrepreneurial <laughs> origin story. Yes. And he uh, he was chatting to someone else and someone was going, you know, but 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 how? How did you do it? And he he just with, you know, the fist clenched go because Liz Liz has got balls. <laughs> and I thought I just, in, a, uh, in the modern woke world, what's the other what's the other phrase for that? Because uh, you spoke about how some women put themselves down yes. to, to we shouldn't be saying you've got balls. Well, you know what? I didn't I, expect to say the word balls so much on this show. Well, Here the, the country girls—they bring it. They bring out the best <laughs> in people. <laughs> um, I think that p- potentially it's more about. Um, I know with my visions and everything, they're palpable. I can touch it. I can smell it. I can feel it. Um, I, I know exactly in my mind how it needs to be. However, you then have to meet that with the dynamic thinking of being able to handle the things that crop up along the way because if you are so fixated on how something must be and there is no option for it to be any other way, in my opinion, you will fail. You have to be able to zig and zag to still achieve an outcome very close to and sometimes better than what you originally thought. But I think with women, I mean, again, the majority of my career I've actually predominantly dealt with men and I love working with men I think they have a way that they go about things that's really direct that I respond really well to you you always know where you stand and I think that um women have an opportunity to like I said earlier let let the work do the talking and don't get too caught up in the rights and the wrongs if you're in the right business and you're doing a good job you need to be able to navigate your way to be supported to achieve the best that you can and not be the woe is me, this is not fair, it's only because I'm a woman that I haven't got that position. Well, okay, and to use the term again, have the balls to go and speak to your manager and go, look, assessing where I'm at and how I've been performing and how I apply myself to my job here, can you shed some light on why I was not the best candidate for that position? And their answer is going to dictate your future in that business. That's fantastic advice for, for everybody out there. Your, how did you get your what you you come up with this vision? You need certain resources to mm. make it a reality. How'd you go about that? Let's just say the big four banks like sh- send a shiver up my spine just because of their lack or their inability to identify somebody's X factor, and I am all too aware that our Blacksmith project ticked every high-risk box. But <laughs> Why weren't the banks running towards Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I, I understand they've got profiles and if anything, you know, the Royal Commission and everything's been happening, that needed to happen. 
make no mistake. However, there needs to be somebody in those institutions who can identify someone like myself and go, maybe she's out of the box. Maybe she doesn't fit the standard criteria here and we need to assess this particular case on its merits. Um, you're obviously a judo customer. Judo's helped make this vision mm. come alive. How'd that happen? Well, they actually put their money where their mouth is. So I worked with a fantastic broker uh, called Brody, who really got our vision. He's based in Melbourne as well, but um, we had a really great connection and he really was like, this is going to be awesome, I guess, for that's where he was at. And he said, look, I want to introduce you to judo. And he goes, oh, they're kind of promoting themselves as a, as a bank non-bank you know, a, a bank of the people and for small business. And I was kind of like, right, I will literally <laughs> believe it when I see it. That sounds like some good marketing. And, you know, I mean, we've heard the um, the NAB campaign backing business in moments that matter. And what BS, what BS, no offence, NAB, sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Hey, paying for this. You're not going as much as you want. It's not my problem. <laughs> but, you know, and, 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 you know, so I've seen those slogans thrown around forever right forever and I just thought yeah right um they come to the party they give you a term sheet mm-hmm. and one of their factors I've heard rumors that it takes four days to get a term sheet from judo I've never been involved in a deal that's done that well we had settled and an opportunity popped up and um the accommodation next door it was a two-bedroom unit and we had spoken with judo about expanding with blacksmith accommodation because that's kind of the next gap for us and just by chance, the real estate agent tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, Lizzie, um, I'm not sure if you're still interested, but the property next door is for sale. Um, that person's finance fell through. It's back on the market. Would you be interested? And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm leveraged to my eyeballs. Judo are going to laugh at me and say, go away. But I did the maths. It's it's positively geared. We've got opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. I thought, you know what, no no harm in asking. And so I called Judo and I said, hey, this has come up. And Michael was fantastic and he said, I'll get back to you in an hour. Because I said, I need to make an offer by midday and it needs to be unconditional and it cannot be subject to finance. I want to settle in 30 days. This needs to happen now. You know, come back to me. He said, no worries. Sounds great. Let me come back to you. And in about an hour and a half, he said, yep, we can do the deal. Place your offer. This is what we can do. And yet the rest is history. When I um, researched about blacksmith, there's not a lot about you on social media. You're quiet. Just how we like it. Just getting on with life. Um, but the actual Eat Drink Design Awards that you won, the final line, that, the way they describe blacksmith, is mm. something I didn't expect. I'm going to read it out. Okay. Uh, most importantly, the land is future-proofed for further development as the business grows. This is a design award. They shouldn't care about your business growing but perhaps they've done it because they're expecting something pretty cool to come from Blacksmith and mm. the Yarrawonga region. Mm. What's next? Blacksmith Villa. So the accommodation, that that is happening. That's what Judo have helped me with. Um, but I think that what they felt and perhaps maybe why we, we won, people can feel the soul of a place. People can feel it from afar or when they're there and they can feel the love and the care. And all I've ever want, wanted is for when people to enter when people enter Blacksmith, they can feel the love and the care. Everywhere you look is a decision, the tile, the grout colour, the lawn choice, the seating, the napkin, the straw in your drink, you name it, it's a decision and, a, um, and it's being considered. I think hospitality in Melbourne especially can turn over some really big bucks 
um, cash cow, so to speak. And I think the people who are on their seventh, eighth, ninth project, because it does become addictive and I understand that, they're running on that. But people can feel that that's kind of what it is and it doesn't exactly ignite that passion and pass on that energy that you want it to. I think with Blacksmith, you know, it's not me, it is our people there and every one of them have what we call Blacksmith Factor and it, it's our version of X Factor, I guess. And and there's something about them that is magnetic and special and unique and none of them look the same and none of them are the same, thankfully. But we let them get to know the customers and it's about all of their connections with our customers, not just mine. Are you heading into the summer season now? Going to be pretty busy, lots of tourists, mm, nervous? Mm. It's like nervous, excited. It's like it's not going to be um, worse than our first summer. So, <laughs> so our first summer, we actually built Blacksmith in nine weeks, which is unprecedented. Wow. Teamwork and actually, I, I feel like we need to get Kevin McLeod from Green Designs because he never <laughs> believes budgets and timelines. Yeah, well, well, budget exactly. He would be right, but timeline, we <laughs> timeline, we exceeded. And I think that um, so we got my. <laughs> Ed and I got married on the 21st of October and we opened Blacksmith on the 21st of December and we poured the slab the week we got married. Wow. And that was on a quarter of an acre and it was genuine teamwork in its finest. Our trades and the community, we were passing buckets of grout at 9 and 10 o'clock at night. Our builder, Luke, was just like, this is going to happen. They wanted me the whole time to take my foot off the gas and admit that we weren't going to get it done for summer. And I didn't have that luxury. I was like, I can't afford to just take my foot off the gas and open it in the new year and tick along. It's like, uh uh-uh, this is balls on the line. This is my balls on the line moment. And thank goodness, because we actually had zero starting capital, which is a whole nother conversation. And our starting cash flow finished, like paid for our final building Mm. costs. And then away we went. And had we have not had that first summer, I don't think I'd be sitting here having this conversation. So that intuition that screamed at me, we must get there, yeah, it was for a reason. Liz, thank you very much for spending time with us on Backbone Podcast today. Any final listeners for maybe the listeners out there who have been, final words for listeners who have been inspired by your story? Oh, it's comical for me um, to be inspiring, but I think Not that- Not really. You've got, <laughs> this is, you, you can toot your horn a little bit. I think that for me, um, one thing that's always, you know, grinded my gears is um, that it's business is an excuse for bad behaviour. Mm. I've never connected with that. I think, you know, why can't we operate with kindness and integrity and be successful? Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you want to know more about Blacksmith, just recommend you go there. Get in the car, drive down to Echuca and pump some of your dollars into a drought-stricken area. My name's David Boyer. This is Backbone. It's brought to you by Judo Bank. I'll see you next time.